Hello, health scientists, and thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Christopher Barricat. Christopher is a competitive natural bodybuilder, bodybuilding coach, and researcher investigating training and nutrition interventions to optimize body composition. He's also currently an adjunct professor at the University of Tampa. I really love the opportunity to speak with body composition researchers who are also physique competitors, because I think we can really benefit from somebody's experience from both sides. What I mean is somebody who understands both the science and the actual work involved in applying the science to real life. And that's exactly what I got with Chris in this episode, where we speak about the holy grail of nutrition and fitness, body recomposition, or gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time. Chris recently published a fantastic paper all about it, and I had a lot of fun picking his brain and learning what the research really says about this very popular training goal. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it, because I know I learned a load from Chris. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can please share and spread the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think might be interested in this podcast, either a coach or even a physique competitor, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some use to them. So on to this conversation with Chris. Let's talk science. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Doing well, man. Doing well. How are you doing? Really, really good. Thank you for joining us tonight. Really, really looking forward to having a chat with you. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me on, and sorry for the technical difficulties. Uh, don't worry. I, I automatically assume that all technical difficulties are my fault, so uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, so I suppose just for anybody who, who might not be familiar with you or, or your work, um, so can you give us a little bit of an introdu introduction as to, to who you are and, and what is it you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this whole process of essentially studying bodybuilding first started with me. Um, I guess we can go back to 2011. Um, I was 19 years, old, 19 years old or 19 years young, however you want to look at it. And um, I got involved with my first bodybuilding competition then. Um, so the year before that, I was essentially um, put in touch with someone who was a natural bodybuilder. And I did not even know that there was a competitive realm for natural bodybuilding. So I went to his show to spectate and to support. And then that very next day, I basically said, hey, I want to try to compete at that same exact show the following year. So I gave myself a year to prepare. Um, I always enjoyed resistance training. And I was always interested in optimizing my health through nutrition. It, it was always something that actually my older brothers um, were really interested in for athletic performance and for overall health. So it kind of trickled down to me. And then when I was in school, originally my, my vision was to go to graduate school for physical therapy. I thought I was going to get a DPT um, at first sight, you know, when I was an undergrad. And that's why I studied athletic training as uh, for my bachelor's degree. And then I wanted to use that as a stepping stone to PT, but essentially I got more involved in bodybuilding from 2011 to 2015. And I said, Hey, rather than studying physical therapy, um, which was actually a realm I was working in for so long, I was working in PT clinics since the time I was 19. I said, I would rather just follow my passion and study exercise science and nutritional sciences to get the best possible understanding um, how to optimize this whole bodybuilding approach. So that's essentially what I did. I ended up getting my master's at the University of Tampa, which is where I currently work and research out of. And uh, that's basically the synopsis of the story. So I started coaching um, towards the tail end of my undergrad. And then that really grew while I was uh, a master's student. And now I basically coach full time. I research full time, part time, however you want to view it. Um, right now during the pandemic, there's no data collection, but we're still working on projects. So that's kind of my background in a, in a short summary. So you're, you're basically a, a, a scientist practitioner. Yes. 
So now that's, it's an interesting one because you said you're coaching full-time and you're, you're pretty much a scientist full-time. And despite the fact that you've mentioned that, you know, we don't have any data collection right now thanks to COVID, um, I know for a fact that that never stops a scientist from uh, getting, you know, overworked, basically. How do you manage to balance those two? Yeah, honestly, this was a kind of a blessing in disguise because it always seems like we have more data than we have more data that's overwhelming to deal with. So the fact that we were able to put everything on pause, it, it gave us some time to catch up on all of the studies that we've worked on years back. And um, yeah, you know, we're still in the process of submitting and writing multiple review papers for different randomized control trials. Um, so it's actually been a nice little break and given us an opportunity to catch our breath rather than feel like we're constantly drowning. Um, but yeah, things are going well and multiple research papers are kind of coming out of our lab with my mentor being Dr. Eduardo de Souza from Brazil. So, um, I'm really grateful to be a part of that lab and, and kind of been learning from him since 2015. So it's been pretty cool. That is awesome. Um, and it, it's good to know that we're going to have a lot of uh, interesting research coming out of your, your, your lab pretty soon. Um, do you want to give us any hints as to what we can expect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right now, there's a paper on repetition tempo that is under review in the JSCR. So really excited about that. Um, we looked at three-second eccentrics versus one-second eccentrics on the leg extension machine. Um, it was a within-subject design. So one leg was doing a slow tempo, one leg was doing a faster tempo. Um, and we did find some differences there. So that'll be cool to report. And then the other study um, that's currently in the writing process is on intracept stretching, specifically in the pec. Um, and both of these studies are in very well-trained individuals. So that's pretty cool because the previous intracept um, stretching studies are only in untrained subjects. So that's going to be a nice little differential. And then... Um, I'm also working on a review paper with some amazing colleagues and some people I really look up to um, on peak week. So this is with uh, Dr. Guillermo Escalante taking the lead on it. Dr. Scott Stevenson is a big part of this. Um, Alan Aragon is a part of it and Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. So really grateful to be a part of that paper. Um, that's a review paper potentially for SCJ. Um, so those are what are in the works. And then I'm working on my first meta-analysis at this current time, too. So uh, just a lot of things going on. How are, how are you finding the meta-analysis? Uh, just getting started. Um, it's, a, it's really exciting to me because it's a new process. Um, I'm learning a lot about the Pedro scale, how to organize all the data, how to essentially determine whether or not we can even use the studies. But it's a lot of work because there's around 1,600 papers that we need to go through. Um, based off our like search key, uh, our, our search words and our key terms. So it's going to be a lot of work, but I'm pumped about it. Dude, uh, pace yourself. That's all I can say. I've, ju I've just like finished my first draft of my first meta-analysis. And all I can say about it is it's a traumatic experience. Like, <laughs> and I was, I was speaking with another colleague uh, who works in a similar field. And he said, I asked him about his first meta and he said he still has PTSD about it after it. So, uh, it's 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 fun. Um, like I like my my total respect to everybody who does a lot of these because there are some people who just focus on meta analyses. Wow, like yeah. fair play. Yeah, uh, I can't I can't do that stuff. Um, Thanks for the heads up. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, best of luck with it. Um, but no, that that's like you've got a lot of really cool research out. And the interesting thing about your research is it's very very much the research that people are asking burning questions about when it comes to training. What can I do? Like, if it comes, should I be stretching between a set? Will that help with uh, hypertrophy, for example? Or, you know, sh what kind of tempo should I be using? And this, these are the kind of things that we, we need to know. And oftentimes, well, in, in, in my experience, I just hear people throwing out random suggestions. Ah, yeah, yeah, do two, two seconds off, hold for you know, five seconds, just drop it for, you know, 30 seconds or something like that. Um, so it's really, really good to know that there's actual scientific literature coming out on this. So uh, well done on that. Man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So one of the one of the big things that I want to talk about now, and I think it's what a lot of people are going to be interested in, is what 
most people consider to be the, the holy grail when it comes to, to bodybuilding science. And that's the science around body recomposition. Um, and ju- just to kind of start that conversation off, what, what exactly is body recomp? Yeah, absolutely. So there's still a lot that we don't necessarily, we don't fully understand all the mechanisms that go into it. But essentially, it's something that is pretty commonly observed in the literature. Um, if you ever run a randomized control trial in exercise science, especially if you're combining nutrition, you can definitely see these outcomes at the end of the within your subject. So it's just that that phase or the outcome of you know, building muscle mass and losing fat mass simultaneously. So um, this has been taught to occur in novice or untrained individuals or extremely obese individuals that have a lot more energy reserves to tap into. Um, But a lot of people have kind of argued or have simply stated that it's impossible for this to occur in those that have higher levels of training experience and have a better training status, so to speak. But it's just not what we've seen in the literature. So that's what kind of read, uh, led down this rabbit hole of diving into it and then just reporting what we've observed in that research review. Awesome. Um, so you mentioned at the start that it's something that people consider to be um, to happen readily in untrained individuals or to happen in people who are uh, suffering from obesity. So can you already mentioned energy availability, but can, can we just talk a little bit about why body recomposition is something that's much more likely to happen in those populations? For sure. So I think there's um, two primary variables that you need to consider. And one is going to be the training status of the individual. So I like to think of this as two different sliding scales where you have one being the training status of the individual and the other being their current body fat level or their current body composition. So when you have a novice trainee, they're further away from their genetic potential in regards to how much muscle they can build. So they can essentially move on this sliding scale to a much greater degree than someone who is already pretty well trained and closer to their genetic potential. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, you have body fat. If somebody has a high level of body fat, they have more energy reserves where even if they are in this calorie deficit, they have so much energy to tap into that they can still, you know, increase muscle protein synthesis and still build muscle and lose fat at the same time while being in that deficit. So I would say those that have the greatest opportunity to recomp is going to be someone who is both untrained and has a high level of body fat where they can decrease their body fat and increase their muscle mass simultaneously. But then you can still see it in someone who is pretty darn well trained, but has a decent amount of body fat and they will still gain muscle and lose fat simultaneously. So if I'm getting this right, we have this situation where people are, like you said, on this, this sliding scale. And I, I, I think an easier, easy way to think of it is like based on the law of diminishing returns, where at the beginning, everything is always easier and it gets a lot harder the closer you get to that, that end goal. And then when you've got something like fat loss on one side and muscle loss on, and muscle gain on the other side, trying to achieve both in, um, in people who are already close to, like you said, their, their, their potential or to the, the higher levels of muscle or lower levels of fat, it just gets more difficult. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like you said, um, the law of diminishing returns is so true on both of those spectrums because even if you start off pretty heavy and you have a decent amount of fat mass to lose, as you get leaner and leaner, it can become more difficult to lose more and more body fat. So the further along that sliding scale you are, the less likely you are to actually recomp. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. The interesting thing is there's always outliers. So I have seen some crazy outcomes with specific individuals. Um, So I hate using black and white terminology or saying this is always going to happen or this is never going to happen. But what we've observed is across a pretty large spectrum of different outcomes. Absolutely. Um, And I I actually want to get into those outliers because... (laughs) Like, I know outliers in science, they're, you know, they are just that. They are not the typical responders, but it is always fun to talk about them and, and talk about the, uh, the genetic freaks, which we, we will get into in a moment. Well, one, one thing that I really, really liked about your 
uh, review paper is that you you took time at the start to consider one thing that a lot of people don't talk about, and that is some of the differences in body comp analysis, just how exactly do we measure somebody's muscle mass or how do we measure somebody's fat mass. And, uh, you know, we don't need to go into a huge amount of detail, but I was wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit of a, an overview of just how we measure people's body fat and muscle and what's the difference between the methods and why does that even matter? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we felt it was pretty important to start the research review off with that section just to give the reader an idea of what these studies are actually reporting, um, what assessment tools did they actually use, and how accurate are those assessments, and what are they actually telling us. So it's really important to understand most of these assessments are actually just measuring fat-free mass as a whole. Um, some of them are two-compartment models. So if you're doing something like a skin caliper or an ultrasound, you're just looking at fat mass and fat-free mass. You're not looking at bone mineral content. You're not looking at total body water. So there's a lot of compartments that do impact both fat mass and fat-free mass that are kind of excluded when you're looking at that two-compartment model. Um, so if you were to you know, see a study that reported a recomposition effect where there were gains in fat-free mass and losses in fat mass, it's important to say, okay, all of these gains in fat-free mass isn't purely from muscle tissue, you know? So that's why we spoke about that. And then you have a three-compartment model, um, which we've previously used in the lab, which you would see if you use something like DEXA scans. And it's, it's important to note that all of these assessments are estimates of your body composition. They're not 100% precise measurements. They're actually guesstimates and estimates. So the three-compartment model is looking at bone mineral density, your lean body mass and your fat mass. And then more recently, some studies are using a four compartment model where they might uh, use something like a bioelectrical impedance machine, which is looking at total body water. And then they're combining that with a different three compartment assessment. So you have total body water, you have bone mineral content, you have lean body mass, you have fat mass. So there's a lot of layers to the puzzle, so to speak but it's pretty exciting that we are getting a bit more precise with how we are actually relaying the information and how we're actually describing these outcomes. So the more details we have, the better idea we can get an understanding in regards to how much of this is actually muscle, not just fat-free mass, so to speak. Um, I, th I think one thing that you, you kind of brought up is that even w within all of these different methods of measuring, there is kind of a, a certain amount of error within each measurement technique. And when we're looking at um, changes in somebody's body comp, changes in somebody's muscle and their fat mass, they can be very, very small changes over time. And I think, you know, a lot of people need to be aware that, you know, some of those changes can fall within the errors of the, or the measurement errors, errors in these machines. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it's also important to note, like some people, just like to criticize the assessment in a very unvalidated manner. So if you are utilizing something like a DEXA scan under the same exact conditions, so you have your subjects, you know, fasting for exactly 10 hours, they're coming into the lab with the same hydration status, they're not fed, um, and you provide that DEXA machine, you can be pretty darn confident in the actual res results, especially if their nutritional intake was the same 24 hours beforehand, you can be really confident. Now, if someone does a DEXA scan at baseline and their glycogen levels are really full because they were in a calorie surplus or they had a ton of carbs the day before, and then at the end of the study, they come in for post-assessments and their nutritional intake wasn't the same, and let's just say for some reason they did a no-carbohydrate day the day before, they drastically changed their diet, I mean, you can see two to three pounds of water being lost, and that may read as a decrease in lean body mass on the DEXA. So as long as the, um, as long as the kind of situation that the subject is being tested under the same circumstances, these assessments have pretty small margins of error. Yeah, and uh, I think even just as a take-home point for, for anybody who, because I, I know like people doing um, kind of DEXA scans, um, it's something, it's becoming a lot more accessible, um, you know, within 
within however accessible you consider doing a dex a is um and i just think even that little piece of advice if you give you be very very consistent with your hydration be consistent with your food intake in the days leading up to it and it 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 does allow for a more accurate result so that's something really really important um you you mentioned in the paper um a, a lot of different examples of of uh, studies that have shown that body recomp does actually happen um and i'm i'm sure like you know we can get into a lot of the 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 different uh the different papers that were mentioned but one that i just want to bring up because it was one that really really stuck out to me um that i'd like to talk about i'm just going to re- read out what the the report was uh it was cribidol and they reported gains uh in fat free mass of 5 kilograms um and so that's a let's say assume a, a gain of 5 kilograms in muscle okay in inverted commas and reductions in fat mass of um that can't be right i'm going to say that's 2 kilos because uh, it must be a misplaced um decimal point uh, and then some other examples from antonio dal gains in muscle mass of 1.9 kilos and reductions in fat mass uh, as well all over the course of 8 or 10 weeks if you told me that i could gain 5 kilograms of muscle in 10 weeks I don't think I'd be blamed for not believing you. Um but how realistic or how typical of the literature are results like this for gains in fat free mass and losses in muscle in in fat mass. Sure. Cool. So in regards to that crib study it's hard for me to say because it's not like I was a part of that data collection process. Um but what I will say if you look at the starting strength numbers of those subjects you can see that their training status wasn't extremely high. So the authors did consider them to be trained individuals. They did have certain inclusion criteria to obviously participate in that study, but it's not like these were extremely strong individuals that have been lifting for let's just call it 5 8 years, right? They might have been lifting for 2 or 3 years. They may have been more recreationally trained so to speak. So um in that scenario, if a subject comes in and they're training at a higher intensity than they ever have and their nutrition is better aligned than it's ever been you can see pretty impressive outcomes in a short period of time and i've seen that in our lab with different studies with different demographics of subjects that may have been even uh, at a higher training status than the previous crib study but um it does occur and i've seen this over and over again it was something that when i first started data collection i wasn't expecting to observe at all i was always interested in seeing how much muscle are these subjects going to gain in an 8 to 10 week period but when i constantly saw certain individuals recomping that's what i found really really interesting and that's kind of what led me to continue looking at the literature to see how um how normal or how abnormal and rare this may be Absolutely. Um I I think it it also kind of highlights another point that while a lot of these studies will talk about, you know, the population as being a trained population or having some sort of resistance exercise experience, I think that the degree of that experience is going to vary hugely between each group and each study. So that's something people need to 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 take into account, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's you know something you can do rather than just looking at the abstract and the results. If you look at the demographics in more detail, it's really important to look at what their starting strength numbers are and that can give you a much better idea of how highly trained are these individuals. You know, are they benching two times their body weight or are they just benching like 1.2 times their body weight or are they squatting three times their body weight or are they squatting one times their body weight just as a random example, right? Absolutely. Um something that uh like I want to get into this a little bit more but something I think that a lot of people are going to be concerned with right now um particularly over here in the UK and Ireland just because we are locked down right now um is everybody's concerned about muscle loss from not being able to go to the gym um and I get the impression just from looking at some of the research in there that there also seems to be a major detraining and retraining effect in some of these studies Um and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of how that might apply to the current scenario as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um that's another great point. So I think there is a difference between training age and training status and sometimes they're kind of grouped 
into one category where they really should be clarified and, and differentiated. So somebody may have six, seven, eight years of resistance training experience, but maybe the last two or three months, their training hasn't been in a good place by any means. Their nutrition hasn't been in a good place. So their training age would be very high, but their training status would be slightly detrained and they're not nearly um, close to their peak performance or their peak body composition, right? So in that scenario, if that subject is kind of starting a research study and is a participant in a research study, um, I would absolutely expect them to have a greater chance to um, experience this recomposition effect compared to a subject who is basically at their peak performance, at their peak body composition at the start, and then they enter the study for eight weeks and they're really trying to grind out any sort of strength gains and muscle gains. So that's a great point that you mentioned. Um, for everyone in the UK and Ireland that are going through this lockdown period, I think maintaining muscle mass isn't going to be nearly as problematic as maintaining strength. So you can still get away with a lot of limited equipment training to maintain your muscle size, but your strength is going to decrease because if you're not performing, you know, specific movements, you're going to lose some of that neurological skill, so to speak, when it comes to those lifts. Um, absolutely. Uh, but then again, um, like just from, from your own experience or your own kind of uh, research into the literature, is it realistic to expect those, gain, those, um, those former strength levels to return relatively quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, from what I've seen with clients too, I, it's hard for me to talk about the literature on that because you're not sure which subjects are you know, slightly detrained or what subjects are kind of at their peak performance even before starting a resistance training study. But from what I've seen with my clients, um, from this previous lockdown, from, you know, March to May here in the States, March to June, um, a lot of clients regained their strength pretty darn quickly. Um, so it's, it's nothing to worry about when you really look at the big picture. But when you're focused on an acute timeline, it can be a little bit disheartening knowing that, hey, you're in a pretty poor position to progress right now. And you're, especially if you're highly trained, this phase may just be like an opportunity for you to maintain your muscle mass and you're probably not going to make much progress during this time period. Absolutely. Um, so that, that's kind of you saying just suck it up to everybody for, for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, one, one thing that I found really, really interesting uh, in the review was that you, you gave plenty of examples of studies that had resistance trained individuals. So they had the experience um, in training and they were recomp recomping quite significantly with these strength training interventions that they were going through, these, these, these experiments. Um, and one thing that I, I kind of want to talk about is how likely or is it possible that these guys were just, they may have been, you know, we've kind of touched on it already. They may have been resistance trained, but they weren't really training hard enough or smart enough to get, like, as you mentioned at the start, to get close to that genetic potential. And they still had a lot of way to go. And going on to, let's say, a structured resistance training program as part of, of one of these experiments, one of these studies, that was the, the stimulus or the impetus that they needed to actually grow and start getting closer to their, their potential. Is, is that something that, that could be likely? Absolutely. So in our lab, um, I would say 90% of the subjects or so basically admit that over that eight to 10 week period, they were participants in the, in the study, that that was the hardest they've ever trained. It was the most intense they've ever trained. And it was a really good environment for them because everybody's kind of pushing each other to progress. Sometimes for a lot of these subjects, it's the first time that we are logbooking every single lift. So in the past, they may have, you know, been going to the gym three to six days per week, but they're not even tracking their loads super, super accurately. So, so that can be a great tool for them. And then what I was mentioning, my first study ever, I was a part of my man, Jacob Rauch was the head author and the PI of it. Um, it was on auto regulation of exercise selection. And the interesting thing with this, a lot of the subjects were forced to train fewer days per week because we were training them three days per week in the lab where in the past they might have trained four to six days per week in the gym. 
but it was also the first time where they were training each muscle group three times per week. So perhaps in the past they were hitting each muscle group just once per week, and now they're a, a participant in the subject in this study, and they're forced to do three full body training sessions. Maybe that novel stimulus of hitting a muscle group more frequently over that acute eight to ten week time period was maybe that was、uh, one of the contributing factors to them making such progress in the period of time. That makes I, I, I think it, it's it's super interesting, and you know, I'm going to speculate and say that a lot of people that are training in the gym and are concerned that you know they're not you know gaining as much muscle as they they would like to be. A lot of them are probably just not training hard enough, or are paying enough attention to what they're actually doing. Like you said, using a logbook to keep a track on on their progress, how much they're doing, how much they're lifting, and little changes like that can can make a huge difference to somebody's progress, right? Absolutely, I, I would say it's really easy to go into the gym and have a quote unquote good workout where you feel like you trash that muscle. But if you're constantly switching it up and you're never tracking your lifts, you're not giving yourself an opportunity to kind of force this progressive overload upon itself. So you're forcing that muscle to adapt the way you're looking to. So yeah, tracking your lifts is super super important. Obviously, it's one of those really basic things、um, that you basically tell everyone from the start they should be doing. But if you go to a commercial gym and you look around. You might see twenty to thirty people in there training and not tracking anything that they're doing. They're kind of just going through the motions, and then the next week they do a totally different workout, and they're not even sure where they previously have left off and what they should be doing. Yeah,、uh, it talks a lot to the power of、uh, consistency, right there.、Um, we obviously we've just touched on on training and kind of the importance of, of resistance exercise for for bringing about body comp changes, but. Where does nutrition fit into the equation, and what's what's the what's the let's say the body of evidence、um, around nutrition and body recomposition right now? Yeah, I would say it plays a massive factor. So,、um, some of the most interesting data, in my opinion, is out of Jose Antonio's lab on the overfeeding studies, specifically、uh, really high protein diets. So, what's pretty cool about some of their results?、Um, The subjects that they utilize in, in their studies are pretty darn well trained individuals, and what they essentially have concluded in a lot of their papers is that increasing protein intake to extremely high levels doesn't seem to lead to any increases in fat mass. So, if you're increasing total body weight,、um, the likelihood of you adding lean body mass by increasing your protein pretty darn high. Is giving yourself the best opportunity to recomp, so to speak. So, there is some data out there showing, you know, subjects eating 300 to 500 more calories per day actually just gained more lean body mass and lost fat mass simultaneously compared to subjects eating fewer total calories with a lower protein intake. So, that is probably due to the thermic effect of protein and how much energy you need to expend. During the digestion and absorption process of protein,、um, but yeah, nutrition plays a huge role. There's still a ton of research that needs to be done,、um, but from what I've seen with coaching my clients, I mean, it's a very, very powerful tool to kind of control your body composition outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, if we were to to talk、um, a little bit more specifically about protein intakes, what would we be talking about as, let's say, a A general range for people who are interested in body recomposition for protein intake. For sure,、um, I personally recommend 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass.、Um, so even if you don't know exactly what your body fat percentage, you don't need to stress that too much. Let's just say you are a 200 pound male and you're approximately 20 percent. So that means you have 160 pounds of fat-free mass, lean mass.、Um, I would recommend 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein.、Um, the more body fat you have, I would say the less protein you need, and then the leaner you are, you may want to have slightly higher protein intakes. Absolutely. So for that 1.6, if you're leaner, and then closer to that 1.2 if you're heavier. 
Absolutely. And this kind of brings us on to the, the next area that I wanted to get with in this conversation is, so you, you obviously in the, in the review, you discussed a lot of the interventions where you were getting people, you were putting them, they, they, they were being put through a resistance training regime, or they were being put through a resistance training and a, a dietary regime as well. And people were observing their results. But in the review, you mentioned that in case studies, where you're looking at, and I, I think this, this is where the crux of the matter is, where you're looking at physique competitors, individuals who are, let's say, they're, they're kind of in, in the peak condition. Um, you weren't seeing the same results. We weren't seeing that body recomp where we're getting an increase in lean mass at the same time as a decrease in fat mass. And I was wondering if you could talk about what's the difference between these, these two, two sets of data or these two sets of individuals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people are trying to say that, hey, there's this research review paper saying that trained individuals can build muscle and lose fat at the same time. So now they just want to say it applies to everybody. And that's not necessarily true, right? So I think the biggest difference in a lot of these case studies in competitive bodybuilders is a few things. A, the subject's training age and training status, they're usually extremely well-trained compared to a subject going into a randomized control trial. Um, also, at the baseline assessment of these case studies, I would assume that a lot of these bodybuilders are, even though they're in their quote-unquote off-season, and this is before they started their fat loss phase of a contest prep, I would assume that their training leading up to that baseline assessment has been really darn good. So they're kind of at their peak level of muscle mass that they've ever been at throughout their history of training. And it's not like they're slightly detrained, so they have an ability to regain lost muscle mass. So if they're starting off at the peak of their training, they have the most amount of muscle they've ever had. Now they're going into this fat loss phase for a very long period of time. So rather than it being an eight or a 10 week study, they might be in a deficit for 16 to 24 to 30 weeks long, right? So it's way longer than the randomized control trials. And more importantly, let's just say if it's a male, they might be starting at a very healthy level of around 14% body fat in their off season. And they're going all the way down to let's say 5% body fat, right? So those are very extreme levels of leanness where we see a lot of negative metabolic adaptations occur. We know that in natural athletes, testosterone levels drop significantly. Um, and that's a huge difference compared to taking a subject that might enter a randomized control study um, that isn't at their peak genetic muscle building kind of level at the start of the study. And more importantly, they might start off at 16% body fat and end at 12% body fat, right? So they start a little bit fluffier, and they're not going to an extreme level of leanness, but they did lose fat and built muscle simultaneously. Um, so there's so many factors. But I think the fact that these bodybuilders are in a calorie deficit for such a long period of time, and they're already starting off pretty darn close to their genetic potential in regards to how much muscle they can build, um, the likelihood of seeing recomp is much lower for that population over that specific time course. I, I think you've just crushed the dreams of a lot of uh, wannabe um, competitors right now. Um, and you're still smiling. Um, but that, that, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I, I think it brings us back to, the, to that whole spectrum thing that you, you spoke about at the start. That, and when we think about the, the, the muscle uh, part of the equation, yeah, people are at their, their max. People are at a, a point where, you know, it's not going to get much better than this because they're so well-trained, so they can only lose muscle. And that, that tends to be what happens with a long comp. Like, even in the best of comps, individuals will lose a small amount of muscle while they're, while they're losing body fat. Or am I wrong? Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. So going back to what we spoke about originally about the assessments that we're using, um, I would say a lot of natural bodybuilders actually don't lose a significant amount of true muscle mass during a contest prep if they're doing everything right, if their nutrition's on point, if they're not overly aggressive with their diet. Um, 
I think, though, what you see in these case studies are a reduction in lean body mass for a multitude of reasons. Um, there can actually be a decrease in lean mass coming from their GI tract. So maybe their stomach, their small intestines and large intestines actually lose a little bit of mass because they've been in a deficit for such a long period of time. Um, we know that they're going through this long chronic calorie deficit and that they are depleting both muscle glycogen and liver glycogen. So maybe the size of their liver is a little bit smaller. And if you take someone that, let's just say they go from 190 pounds to 160 pounds, you are going to lose some fat-free mass, but it's not necessarily muscle. So it's really important to look at some of the case studies that have assessed bodybuilders' contest preps while using an ultrasound and looking directly at the skeletal muscle itself rather than kind of taking this, um, this terminology of lean body mass or fat-free mass and kind of saying, hey, they lost three pounds of muscle. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's an, an, an awesome um, point to bring up um, because I, I, it's something I, I wouldn't have considered, but you know, now that you mentioned it, it it's, it's very interesting to think that some of these individuals, if they're doing everything right, they may potentially be holding on to all of their muscle. And you know, if, we're, if we see changes in, like you said, total lean body mass or, or fat-free mass, it could be coming from other sources. So that's, that is very, very interesting. For sure. I have some data on my 2017 contest prep that I never published um, in regards to specific muscle thickness assessments on the ultrasound. Um, so my lean body mass did, did, did decrease on the DEXA, and I did see a little bit of loss on my clavicular head of my pec and the sternal head of my pec. So my chest thickness did decrease a little bit. But my quads actually grew in some areas to a very, very small degree, or I kind of totally maintained my muscle mass in my, in my lower half. Um, so I think it's really cool to actually directly assess that. And, like, all I looked at was pec thickness, quadricep thickness, and bicep thickness. Um, and I think I did a pretty darn good job of retaining my muscle, but I did lose a little bit. I just think it's kind of overhyped and people – might even worry a little bit too much about losing muscle mass while contest prepping. Again, as long as they're not overly aggressive and they're still taking their training approach in a very evidence-based manner. Awesome. Um, if, if, we, if we look outside of nutrition and training, what would you say is an, one of the, the other more important factors when it comes to um, you know, uh, maintaining lean mass and, and losing fat mass? Yeah, I would say um, sleep is huge, and, and that's something else that, that we mentioned in the paper. But sleep is huge not only for its effects on your hormonal profile, um, whether that be testosterone levels, cortisol levels, uh, insulin sensitivity, the whole nine, but sleep also significantly impacts your performance. So if you're constantly getting poor sleep, your ability to maintain performance in the gym or improve at the gym is going to be significantly hindered. So if your performance continues to drop and you're now providing your body with a slightly less effective or less total amount of work in the gym, you're now kind of compounding the negative effects and you're compounding the likelihood of you losing muscle while in a calorie deficit. So I think sleep is really, really massive. Um, and again, that can benefit people while they're in this improvement phase and they're trying to maximize muscle building, or it can really optimize their fat loss phase and kind of really secure that they're going to maintain more muscle mass and maximize how much fat mass they're losing. Absolutely. And, and I think, uh, you know, more people are concerned with sleep these days than, than they have been in, in, in the past, like, you know, a few decades, because it does affect so many systems and it does affect our ability to perform to, to, to our best, uh, basically. So it, I think it was awesome that you guys covered it in, in, the, uh, in the review paper and just you spoke about it so much. And um, for anybody interested, there are some fantastic uh, studies mentioned in, in the review paper, and I just can't recommend reading it enough. Um, and ju just out of curiosity, um, if you keep a track on, on metrics, how has, has the paper been doing? Oh, the paper has absolutely smashed it. So 
I want to give a huge shout out to my co-authors and my colleagues, uh, Jeremy Pearson, my mentor, Dr. Eduardo de Souza, two of my really good friends, Dr. Bill Campbell and Dr. Guillermo Escalante. Uh, the paper has been like just the reach has been insane. Um, I got a notification on ResearchGate that it is the most read paper out of the University of Tampa ever. So wow. um, it has like over 25,000 alone. And then because it's public access on um, the SCJ, I'm not sure how many reads it has, but the stats are crazy. So that's been pretty cool. <laughs> that is amazing. And it, like within, within science, it's, <laughs> it's funny. I, I look at some of the stats for other research papers because you see a lot of research papers on, on random kind of science papers out there and you're like, Oh, it's had, you know, it's been published for the past year and it's had like 300 downloads or something like that. And then you look at stats for, if we're talking specifically about um, sports science and specifically about something to do with body fat, muscle mass, anything like that, the stats are absolutely ridiculous. So, um, man, congratulations. It's, it's, it's awesome that you guys are doing so well from that. Um, if, if we kind of like talk about in general about the paper and like the, the recommendations, what would be some like the major take-home points that people can apply to, let's say, maximize their muscle development while also reducing body fat at the same time? Sure. So I'll kind of start off with nutrition. Um, a lot of people – so a common recommendation in this evidence-based space, especially on social media – is you hear this this recommendation of just having one gram of protein per pound of body weight for your protein intake. Um, and I, I think that's a decent starting point for most. But if you've never experimented with higher protein intakes, give it a shot because the evidence does support it. And if that's something you've never done, you may be surprised with the body composition outcomes that you see by doing so. Um, and then if you have never really paid attention to optimizing things like nutrient timing, what, your, what is your pre-workout meal kind of consisting of? Um, a, how much total carbohydrate in there? What kind of carbohydrate sources are you using? Are you using um, a high glycemic carbohydrate that is causing a rapid spike in blood glucose and then kind of causing you to crash while you're training and your energy levels really dip? Or are you utilizing lower glycemic carbs or multiple transportable carbs? So you're having a starchy glucose kind of source, and then you're combining that with a fruit source to provide your body with some fructose as well. Like, are you really optimizing all of these variables? If not, you can definitely look into, you know, optimizing your nutrition that way. Um, and then going back to what we mentioned on training, are you someone that's constantly switching up your workouts and not really tracking your lifts? Or are you on a structured program that makes sense to you? It's something that you can sustain. It's something that you'll enjoy. Um, and it's something that you can just keep up with for at least 12 weeks to give yourself the best shot to make the most amount of progress possible. Um, and then, again, have you ever really prioritized your sleep? Or are you someone that's laying in bed, scrolling on your phone at midnight, you know, constantly receiving blue light, constantly receiving all the stimulus, um, and not really prioritizing your sleep in so many ways. So there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, we do have a practical application section in that paper to, ch to check out for everyone that wants to check out. Um, and it, it can be things like increasing your training frequency, but it really depends on your situation and where do you have the opportunity to improve. So it's something that you need to do a lot of self-reflection on and kind of critique and self-audit to see, all right, what can I do better? and then give yourself that best shot at doing so. Absolutely. Some really, really solid points right there. And I think I think just the simple fact of that last point is thinking and self-reflecting on what can I be doing better is huge for a lot of people because I think once you start thinking about that, you're realizing, oh, well, okay, I could be you know eating a little bit more protein or I, I could be a little bit more consistent with my training re regime. And that's exactly what pe some people might need. Um, Chris, this conversation has been absolutely fantastic. Like I, I, like I said, I could chat to you about all of this for so long and we could go down so many different alleyways. Um, but I, I just want to say um, thank you so much for telling us all about this. And for anybody who's interested and wants to kind of learn more about you or follow you or, or kind of keep up with you, what's the best way to do that? 
Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It's It's been awesome on my end, too. So thanks for having me on. Um, for everyone that wants to kind of check out more educational content, definitely go to my website, my educational platform. It is schoolofgains.com, and gains is spelt with a Z. Um, on there, you can find a, a nutrition guide. It's the ultimate guide to body recomposition written by myself and my good friend, Jeff Nippard. So that was released in October of 2019. Um, and actually creating that was part of the process of me really diving through the literature to see, okay, how often is recomposition actually occurring in the scientific literature? And that really led down that rabbit hole for me to actually end up writing this review paper with all my colleagues. So that was awesome. And, and that resource provides you a ton of information on how to really optimize your nutrition um, to give you the best body composition outcomes possible. So yeah, definitely check me out there, schoolofgains.com. Um, and then obviously here on Instagram, just my full name. And if you guys are on live, you see it. If you guys are tuning in on the podcast, it's just at Christopher.Barricat. And I will include links to all of that, to your website, to your Instagram, and to the research paper, which I can't recommend people enough. Please, please check it out. It is a fantastic read um, and very, very, very uh, accessible to everybody. Um, and I want to, again, congratulate you on the success of the paper. And Chris, um, I want to wish you the absolute best. Um, take care of yourself in Florida, and hopefully we'll get to chat with you uh, about this again very very soon thanks so much my man uh last thing i want to say for everyone in the uk and ireland or wherever you may be if you're going through lockdowns if you go to schoolagains.com go to resources and articles there is a free downloadable um limited equipment workout program that you can download so it's there's a three day a week four day a week five day a week um, with really limited equipment, whether it's just resistance bands or whatever it may be. So you guys can download that for free and have some sort of structure while you're in quarantine and forced to be locked down. So I hope that helps you guys out. Awesome. And I'm going to tell you, I'm probably going to be the first one to download that because I am sick of the current routine I'm using right now. <laughs> Looking forward to back on it, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. Take care of yourself. Have a great one. You too, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.